Hi, Mouse Planeteers, and welcome to Mouse Station in orbit around Mouse Planet. I'm Mike Demopoulos, a former Walt Disney World cast member. And still dealing with the remnants of Memorial Day barbecue, I'm Mark Goldhaber, editor and staff writer here at MousePlanet.com. This is episode number 21 for May 31st, 2007. Welcome to the podcast. Each week we'll broadcast live from this orbital outpost, bringing you the latest from the world of Mouse Planet. You can send us feedback by sending email to podcast at mouseplanet.com or by calling our toll-free feedback line at 1-866-939-2278. We love it when you call a feedback line because then we can play your call on the show. As always, we'd also like to thank our sponsor, Small World Vacations, Mouse Planet's preferred Disney travel provider. You can find them on the web at www.vacations.com. Perhaps you knows too much. You've seen the cursed treasure. You know where it be hidden. Now proceed at your own risk. These be the last friendly words you'll hear. You may not survive to pass this way again. In this week's feature, we're going to talk about what we think of Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. And now, on with the show. Should we, should we put in, with apologies to Exitensio. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now it's time for the tip of the week. This week's tip comes from my friendly co-host. At Disneyland and Disney's California Adventure, if you'd like a sit-down meal but don't want to spend the money on the inflated Disney prices and you don't mind being out of the park for a short while, leave the park and head over to Harbor Boulevard. There are several sit-down establishments with good food and reasonable prices where you can have a nice meal and then walk back over to Disneyland or DCA and enjoy the rest of your day. That's a good tip. I have done that once on my one trip to Disneyland, um, which is kind of sad, but I didn't want to leave the park. But there are some great restaurants over there. My favorite part of Harbor Boulevard, believe it or not, Mark, you'll never guess. I can't guess. The 7-Eleven. The 7-Eleven. Yes, because we don't have them in Minnesota, and they have things that you can only get in certain states, and I miss some of those novelties. So. Uh-huh. Yeah, I've actually uh, stopped at the 7-Eleven occasionally when staying on Harbor Boulevard and on my way back to the hotel room, stopped there to get a uh, snack to have in the room. But also another thing that you can do is to work that in to your midday break. So if you're looking to take a midday break for the park and head back, then you can leave, have a late lunch, maybe go back to your hotel if you're staying on Harbor, and then head back into the park in the evening. Or perhaps have an early dinner before you go back. And there are several reviews in the Mass Planet review system for Harbor Boulevard restaurants in case you are looking for an interesting place to eat. And that's our tip of the week. Do you have a tip to share with our listeners? Send it to podcast at mouseplanet.com. We'll give you credit on air if we use your suggestion. Mouse Station featured topic. 
This week, we're going to give our views on Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. Mike caught one of the preview showings on Thursday and then saw it again yesterday, or I guess it would be Sunday since the show comes out on Thursday morning. I was able to catch a 9.10 a.m. showing on Saturday uh, in order to be able to catch it while my wife and son were otherwise engaged, as my son was definitely not up for it, and uh, my wife was uh, unable to come with me. So, why don't you start off, Mike? What's what's your uh, overall opinion of the movie? <laughs> okay, where to start on this one? Um, first of all, I saw the movie twice because I... One, wanted to catch it from a different set of eyes and it would bring different people with me to see what they thought of it. And two, I you know, was curious on seeing if, I had any, if my opinion changed. It didn't. But this is my quick thought of it. Um, the movie itself, I thought, was, it was a, a decent movie. I thought it had a um, pro- thought-provoking storyline, um, a lot of it, and I thought that, you know, it overall was a good way to close out the series or at least close it out for now. I didn't fall away in love with the movie, though. The storyline was way too twisted. There was way too many storylines going on at once. The action seemed to be overall action without any real point to it. I've heard people say the analogy of, well, Pirates 2, Pirates 1 didn't have a lot of action, a lot of special effects, and made, it made a lot of money. Pirates 2 had a lot more special effects and made a ton more money. So Pirates 3, they'll just do a ton of special effects. And, you know, I think it looked good, and I think it wasn't over the top, but I'm not thrilled with the movie. It's not definitely one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, I am glad I saw it, though. What about you, Mark? Well, I thought it was uh, a largely enjoyable movie. I think that they... uh, Well... Let me put it this way. When I saw Dead Man's Chest, I said, okay, this second movie is kind of like the equivalent of The Empire Strikes Back. It's kind of very deep, and it's leading towards a final resolution in the next movie. It's not really a conclusion at the end, and... Maybe when we get to the third movie, we'll take everything and we'll, you know, have a nice, solid movie and wrap it up into a neat package at the end and say, here, this is the end of the series. That didn't happen. It, it, well, first off, I'll say that in Alex Stroop's review last Friday, which we'll link to in the show notes, he says, there are two movies crammed into these three hours and if anyone cares enough to do it, I envision fan edits that cut out all of the side trips and unnecessary story elements. I don't think that there were two movies crammed into three hours. I think that there was a full-length feature. I think that there was a featurette. And I think that there were about ten fairly lengthy shorts. I think that there were so many different plot lines going on, so many pieces that were thrown in there, that didn't need to be there, that weren't related to anything else in there, that 
I think what may have happened is they came up with all these great ideas and they couldn't part with any of them. So they just took some stuff and shrunk it down and kept it in there, even though it really didn't make any difference either way into the story. And at the end, what you had was just a confusing mess that just couldn't stand up under its own weight. There was so much going on at the same time, especially in the middle hour of the movie. I mean, two hours and 48 minutes for an adventure film. There's, they tried to put so much... Pl- now, on one hand, maybe they're saying, we're going to put so much stuff in that people aren't going to be able to understand it the first time through. And so we're going to go and we're going to do this so that people are going to have to come back and see it so many times in order to catch everything that we put in there. That's the only reason I can think of for some of this stuff being in there, because it doesn't advance the plot. All it does is it's, it's there to add layering or confusion so that you have to go back and see more, so you can try to unravel it. But it, it, it's really, it, it, it didn't add anything to the movie. I think that, you know, Walt Disney was notorious for cutting scenes from movies, no matter how good an idea it was. If it didn't advance the plot, it got cut from the movie. And I think that he would have wielded a hatchet very strongly with this movie. And I think that rather than two hours and 48 minutes, the same story probably could have been told well in an hour and 48 minutes. I would mostly agree. And Mark, I don't know what you thought, but I had no idea, you know, there were times when, when, especially in Davy Jones's locker, that I felt like we were in the Matrix. And I was, it it made hardly any sense to me at all. You know, some of that, some of the things... I think in Davy Jones's locker, a a lot of it was supposed to be Jack losing his mind because he was isolated. Okay, I, I'll i give you that. But the crabs? What do you think of the crabs? First of all, is it a nod at the stone crabs in the attraction? Those particular crabs, I'm not sure of. The other crabs toward the end of the movie, which I'm not going to talk more about where they came from in terms of spoiler alert, but I think that those crabs may be more of a... Um, nod to the stone crabs. Okay. I the movie had way too many side trips on it. I mean, don't get me wrong, I enjoyed the movie. There was not a time when I'm like when I thought, okay, this was a waste of my time. I did enjoy the movie and I thought um I'm happy the movie exists. I'm not wishing they didn't make it. But it there was so much extra junk there that just made it more confusing the Mark, you might have a valid point. Let's make it more confusing so you have to see it again to get all the different side trips. Because and you know what else? If what? they had made it a tighter movie and made it an hour and 48 minutes, they would have been able to get a whole bunch more showings, and it would have beaten Spider-Man. <laughs> uh, Walt Disney Pictures is now kicking themselves, right, Mark? You never know. <laughs> I don't know how much of it Really, I thought was unpredictable. 
I I don't think that there was a whole lot that surprised me aside from the way that they did some of the visual effects. I don't I don't think that there was a whole lot that made me say, "Oh my god, really?" Even right down to the um surprise identities at the end. I I just, you know, had a feeling that they were coming. So I don't I don't know that um I really um was surprised by any of it. No, there was a couple things when I was like, oh, that's interesting, but nothing out was really that shocking. There was some... Um, now let's go back to the um, movie itself. First of all, on the different things, like how would you rate the action scenes? The action scenes were quite overwhelming in how intense and how fast-paced they were. I would agree. It's definitely one. It's definitely one of those movies that you see flashes of color, and it's really hard to even tell what's happening in a lot of it. You know. Well, I think also that the intensity of the violence and the violence that led off the movie before the opening credits, I think, also took me aback a bit. Uh, I definitely agree with Alex's review, where he says that this is quite possibly the most violent PG-13 movie ever released. I, I might have agreed with that as well. Do you think this movie was too violent to be flown under the Walt Disney Pictures flag? I think that if it was not the second sequel wrapping up the trilogy, and if it was not... I don't know what they did to bring this to, to make it happen, but it would it would not have come in as a PG thirteen. I don't know how this came in as a PG thirteen from from just the sheer amount of violence in this. But you know, they got it in as a PG thirteen. There were some kids in the movie theater with me at at nine ten in the morning, and I was looking at the kids. And from the things that I had heard about the movie. Um, I was sure that they were going to be screaming, and, and I was shocked when they didn't. Of course, that brings up a whole another discussion of how parents are bringing kids to movies that maybe are more violent than these kids should be exposed to, and desensitizing them to violence. I mean, when you've got a kid that looks like he's six years old, going to a movie where you see hundreds of deaths, including many of them um, up close and personal, and, you know, watching bodies being blown apart and whatever. I don't know. I, I, I don't get it. Um, I'm looking up the official criteria for all the individual movie ratings. Mm -hmm. And first of all, World's End was rated PG-13 for, quote, intense sequences of action-slash-adventure Violence and some frightening images. But to get, be able to get an R rating, at least according to the official standards, it needs to have more extreme blood and gore, which this movie doesn't really have. Okay, you know what it is? That there's no, you don't really see much blood. Yes. You see, a lot of, you see a lot of people die and a lot of stabbings and things. And you see you know, people getting blown up by cannonballs, yeah, but... You don't, you don't see, see the result blood the when they when they get blown up. So maybe that's how they dodge the R. 
yeah, I believe that's what happened there. But the first couple minutes of the film threw me off guard. I was shocked that that was even in there. In the first five minutes of the film, a young a young boy got you know they showed a young boy get hung. Not all of it, but they you know. Yeah, they show they were showing mass hangings, and for each group being hung, you would see when the hangman pulled the lever, they would show from underneath the platform, so you just saw the feet dropping. So you didn't actually see the the necks in the noose when they dropped. But you saw the neck the nooses around their necks. You saw the bottom drop out under and the feet drop. And you saw a young and and they boy showed the get, young boy getting hooked up to the gallows and everything as well. But so that's what we think of the action. What about the the script writing? Do you think there was enough humor in there to make it a, a traditional pirate movie? I, I the, my thoughts on the humor was that the jokes they had were actually th- funny. It wasn't like number two where they kept using the same jokes over and over again. I was happy that there wasn't that many rum jokes in this film as the last one. But I thought the the jokes they had were funny. I think that the quality of the humor that was put in was good. I think that the quantity would have been appropriate in a one-hour, 48-minute movie. Because there were were long stretches where they didn't have any comic relief and probably would have benefited from it because the dramatic action, violence, whatever scenes were going on a bit long. I would agree with that. There is one actor, though, that surpassed my opinion, and this is the best performance I've ever seen this particular actor and that would be the monkey (laughs) yes jack did very well yes the monkey jack did his best work of his career in my opinion so um hats off to jack do we know that monkey's real name not off the top of my head okay um i don't know if they have it in the credits or not but um what was your opinion of um Keith Richards' um, much-ballyhooed cameo. Oh, jeez. I thought he did well in his role. But I was thinking what everyone else in the theater was saying aloud. It's Captain Hook. So, what? you know. Yeah, everyone, I, everyone in the theater thought it was Captain Hook. They didn't they hear the name. They thought it was Captain Hook. Yeah. They um then people around me were actually physically saying that and I didn't and I knew it wasn't because I heard the name in the movie because they Captain said Captain Teague yeah Captain Teague um and I thought oh they thought he, it was Hans Conried who did the voice for Captain Hook Is no they, they physically thought? thought they physically thought it was Captain oh Hook. they thought he was supposed to be Captain Hook yes which I don't understand no, um, I don't get it either but anyway I thought his cameo was well done I thought um. He had a good role in the movie. What I really didn't understand is what's his role in the pirate court, the Brevin court. He's not one of the pirate lords. He's the keeper of the code. Keeper of the code. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. And Jack's dad. Yes, we that was got that. That yes, the the line where they actually put that forth is one of the 
cute pieces of humor in the movie. You would call that a cute it's, it's, piece it's, of... it's almost it's almost it's almost a link to Jungle Cruise. <laughs> I know. I was gonna say they got the Jungle Cruise in there now. <laughs> And if you haven't seen the movie, you'll have to see it to get that joke. We're not going to tell you. But Keith, anyway. Rich, Keith Richards does do you know, a reasonable job in his role. They don't give him a whole lot of lines. But you know, he's got that gravity about him, which he actually toned down his mannerisms. Um, either that or he was in an altered state, which left him unable to to sway about but uh he uh he had two appearances one in the brethren court and one later on but he did all right he did all right one interesting thing to note a couple of facts that i didn't know if you knew mark mm-hmm. is that all the pirate flags that they used for all the different um pirate factions or countries mm-hmm. were historically real pirate flags hmm. i did not know that with the exception of Jack what Sparrow. was used? Well, yes, that obviously was n- not um, an actually historically used one, and the one that was on the Black Pearl, which is the flag from the attraction, that has never been in that design is specifically has never been historically used. Hmm. Interesting. It was designed by. It was designed. It was stylized for the attraction. But uh, speaking of the attraction, they have some cool nods in the attraction. <laughs> they really do. Um. The nod to the attraction as they go into Davy Jones's locker, I thought was almost gratuitous. I'm not entirely certain that it really fit in there where they put it there. I think that they almost said, "What? How can we put you know another nod to the attraction in?" Ooh, while when they when they go on the way to Davy Jones's locker, we could have some attraction audio. Yeah, I mean, it, no. it, did, it didn't. It didn't really seem like it was appropriate within the framework of the movie. Well, um, especially, especially how much they put there. I would agree with that. The way they went to David Jones's locker, the waterfall, that alone is a cool nod to the attraction. Yes. That, that I thought they was very good. I thought that was going to a blank screen and seeing and hearing. There was a lot of audio from a lot of parks that attraction in there. It was like every, Big line, like lot memorable line from the attraction. They just kind of put together. Um, Let's throw it all in. And you know, it was kind of cool to see the original attraction audio in there and hear that. But it was like, it was distracting. Really Makes sense. It doesn't it, make sense. It took away from the movie. I liked what they did with the dog. Yes, I. The dog was definitely. It was cool to see the dog again. Okay, but we can keep bab- blabbering around this. We're, let's talk about opening weekend a little bit. What? Okay, we'll we'll talk, we'll talk about it more in in the uh, Mouse Planet Watch news podcast, but we'll talk a little bit about it now. Okay. What is your theater like? Well, it was nine ten in the morning, so we had thirty forty people in there. Okay. Um, it was it was not filled. It was it was very empty actually, but it was nine ten in the morning. Yeah. When I was at my local theater, it was an AMC. About 25 screens, I believe. At, at 8 o'clock, they used all 25 screens, and they had three showings on every screen that night. And every showing was sold out. There were lines around the block and traffic jams in every direction. I was shocked to see that many people there on preview night. 
Now, on the other hand, when I went Sunday evening, the theater was relatively empty. For a 7.30 show, there was only about 30 people in there. So, I don't, I don't know exactly what that means, but that's the experience that I had. But, Mark, we were right. Our guesstimates about what place it would be in if it would break the opening weekend numbers of the other two competitions, we were correct there. So I, I knew it wasn't going to happen because Spider-Man, there was literally nothing else out that week. The movie took in, I think, 80% in the entire weekend's box office by itself. Shrek the Third, Spider-Man had more or less burnt itself off by then. There was nothing else in the theaters. Nothing else was opening that week. So it went gangbusters. Pirates, to do as well as it did, with Spider-Man still in theaters, Shrek in its just second week, Bug opened at the same time in wide release. I think that it did phenomenal considering that. I mean, when you look at the number two, three, and four movies for the weekend, and to see that they brought in a combined 70 plus million dollars and pirates still brought in 115 million domestically for the three-day weekend i think that that is an amazing feat oh it's 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 a, an impressive opening they've run the, they won the record of the widest release and for the memorial day release record but you know just cuz there's only so many screens to go around we kind of knew it was going to happen. Now, if there wasn't any other competition like there wasn't for the other two releases, for version one and two, especially two, I think it would have pulled in a lot more because there was nothing else to see. So. Right. Um, now, also, if you look um, at the top opening grosses for first three days in release, At World's End is actually number five on the list. Spider-Man 3 is number one. Dead Man's Chest is number two. Dead Man's Chest also opening on a weekend when nothing else was out there. Um, uh, Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith is number three. And then Shrek is about $6.5 million ahead of Pirates uh, at World's End. Now, when you go to the top four days, Pirates now has moved up past Shrek by $11 million, and it is in much closer place behind the others. It's only $19 million or so behind Spider-Man for the four-day record. So it'll be interesting to see whether there are enough people taking vacation during Memorial Day week to help boost At World's End over Spider-Man for the by the five day mark, six day mark, or seven day mark, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, I'm looking at this in Spider Man 3 from day four to day five, only brought in an additional eight million dollars. In fact, Revenge of the Sith and Dead Man's Chest both jumped past it in day five. So we'll have to see how. Uh, at World's End does over the next week to see how it moves forwards. But well, uh, there's also one record that Pirates 3 can still break. Mm-hmm. Well, multiple money records, but one record that, you know, 
which Pirates 2 won, which I don't think many people know about. Can you guess uh-huh. which one that is? Um, most successful pirate movie? <laughs> no. Pi- Pirates of the Caribbean 2 have, has won the record of being the most successful grossing Tuesday of all time. Ah. So, apparently a lot of people w- liked watching Pirates 2 on Tuesdays last time. So, which I always found interesting. Yep. But in terms of overall gross for movies released in 2007, At World's End is already number five for the year. And can you guess what it's $7 million behind? Let's see. Wild Hogs. Really? Yes. That John Travolta movie has brought in 163 million and change. And Pirates has at this point brought in 156 million. And so I'm expecting it's going to pass Wild Hogs shortly. Next up is the 300 at 208 million and change. Shrek the Third is at 219 million plus. And Spider Man 3 is over $307 million. So, in terms of the summer long box office derby, Pirates still has its work cut out for it, as it's still only around half of the total of the leader right now. Of course, it's also only been open for one weekend. So this is going to be a horse race to the finish, especially with so many other big features opening later this summer, uh, not the least of which is the latest Harry Potter movie. So this is going to be an interesting summer. It will be an interesting summer, but... I think we've talked about this topic quite enough. Um, before I ask you what your star rating is, Mark, let me just quickly say I'm happy Harry Potter is not a Disney movie. So I don't <laughs> have to talk about it or see it. Now, Mark, World's End, how many planets? Uh, somewhere between three and a half and four out of five. I would say three and a half planets out of five for me. Before we get off of this topic, I almost forgot two things. Did you stay all the way through the credits? <laughs> of course I stayed all the way through the credits. I thought that that was a, an interesting scene at the end. Well, yes. It, you know. Le- leading to the possibility of the next group of Pirates movies, but we'll have to wait and see that. Yeah, but, it, was very, it was very cool to see the tag at the end, and it's a... Uh, you know, it could be a public service announcement in its own right. So, <laughs> But while I was sitting there watching the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of names streaming past and the full screen of, of stuntmen, and as they were getting through the, um, the musical portion of the credits, I saw going past under the heading of Featured Musicians... Gore Verbinski. And, yeah. I'm, and I'm wondering what instrument does Gore Verbinski play that he was featured musician as well as director? I'm not sure, but I noticed that as well. A couple of interesting things to note about the credit is that 20th Century Fox did some of the sound audio mixing for the movie. And I, I think everyone already knows that Industrial Light and Magic did, the Lucasfilm Company did a lot of the special effects work for that movie as well. Yep, I mean a lot a lot of work 
is contracted to um, other studios just in order to get the work done a lot of the time. So I'm not surprised by that. All right, so now, as of Monday night, Memorial Day, we have not received any of your reviews of Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. I know, I'm shocked. I am shocked. So, email podcast at mouseplanet.com. Toll-free voicemail, 1-866-939-2278. Let us know what you thought about the movie. Come on. We're waiting for you. Our answering machine is lonely. It's getting depressed. You need to call and make it feel more at home. Okay, seriously, no one's called in with a review. This is really... I'm really surprised, Mark. Yeah. Should we, should, should we do the pitiful... No, no, we're not going to do the pitiful voices. That's, that's not right. So we'll just say, please call. Let us know what you think of the movie. We're very curious to hear what the rest of you have to say. And for those of you who want more Pirate Mania, make sure to listen to the Mouse Planet Watch podcast, where I'll be doing an overview of all eight systems World's End the video game is on. And that'll be it for this week's featured topic. Featured Attraction. In our Featured Attraction segment, we present information from Mouse Planet's Park Guides. This week, it's not so much an attraction as a show, as we look at Billy Hill and the Hillbillies in Frontierland at Disneyland Park. Let's start it off with a quick uh, reading of the summary on the Park Guide page. It says, This piece of dinner theater is one of the lesser-known gems at Disneyland. Billy Hill and his band performed comedic musical numbers with a country bluegrass theme. Taking place inside the Golden Horseshoe, food is available, but it is not necessary to eat while watching the show. Seating is somewhat tight, and don't forget to check for room in the balcony, so showing up a bit early is recommended. Now, I've caught the Billies twice. Uh, have you ever seen them, Mike? Yes, I have. I saw them as part of a tour at, um, when we had the balcony reserved to our, cell, to our tour group. Oh, that sounds like fun. It was fun, and they had the elegant turkey sandwich box lunch waiting for us. Ooh. <laughs> yes, it came with a mint. <laughs> so what do you think of the Billies? Hey, I love live entertainment, and I think it just makes the park experience more enjoyable. I am unsure if I would make a special trip just to see the Billies, so, though. You know, it, if there wasn't the ability to get food, I'm not sure I would go into. I'm not sure I would go out of my way to see them. What about you? Well, both times I've seen them, I went out of my way to see them without getting food. One time, I saw what's probably my favorite one thing that I've seen them do is a one-man acoustic guitar version of classical gas. Absolutely amazing. But they do a lot of really funny stuff. They do a lot of good musical stuff. They have uh, some amazing... um, What's the word I'm looking for? Amazing orchestration, shall we say. But it's it's a really fun show. I mean, yes, you hear the same jokes between various shows, but it's still a lot of fun. And even even the uh, fake hillbilly teeth, for some reason, I get a kick out of that. But, I don't uh, think they're fake. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, 
from from thanking the um, Department of Corrections for allowing them to be there uh, right through you know the end of the act. It's just a lot of fun watching them. I enjoy it. Next time I'm back in Disneyland, I expect that I will make sure that I get over to see them again. It's just it's just a rollicking good time, as they say. And um, I've actually seen two different casts of the, of the Billies now that I think about it. And they were both really good, uh, funny, and entertaining musically. Now, so don't get I, me wrong. I give, I give them a big thumbs up. Don't get me wrong. I enjoyed my time seeing the show. I just, you know, in my limited time at Disneyland, I am not sure if I would make a special trip to see the show. But I did enjoy it. It's not, it was not a disappointment, on the very least. And that Disneyland VIP tour group gourmet meal definitely could, um, made it so much better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's... Uh, I, I really enjoy it, and I heartily recommend it, and I know many others who do as well. We'll I'll put a link to the Billy's Park Guide page in the show notes. Review System Spotlight! Once again, we spotlight reviews of one restaurant or resort from Mouse Plants Review System. This week, we're going to look at Beaches and Cream at the Yacht and Beach Club at Walt Disney World, which is described in Mouse Planet's Park Guide as, quote, more of a snack and Sunday shop than a restaurant. Beaches and Cream does serve excellent burgers as well as sweets. The atmosphere is reminiscent of turn-of-the-century Fenway Park and very festive. The Mudslide Sunday is a classic for chocoholics. Be aware that this is a very small restaurant. There is very limited seating, and since it borders against the resort's arcade, it tends to be quite noisy. It was rated 4.1 out of 5 planets on the strength of 9 reviews. A review that was rated helpful by both people who rated it is a 4-planet review by Craig C. of Memphis, Tennessee, who visited February 17, 2007. The review reads as follows. The burgers were great, and the ice cream even better. We sat at the counter and had a great time in the fun atmosphere. Our lunch did, however, take a very long time. First we had to wait about 20 to 30 minutes to be seated. Then the nice lady who was our waitress just seemed to be overloaded. It seemed like she was taking care of almost everyone in the place, while other workers were just standing around. We got to see a table order the kitchen sink, a huge sundae with every flavor of ice cream and topping. It was a large table with about 10 people celebrating a birthday. They seemed to finish it off, but just barely. Lots of fun. We will definitely go back, but probably just for ice cream, so it won't take so long. And, on the unbeaches and cream-like sentiment of Take Two, They're Small, another review that was rated helpful by the only person who rated it is a four-planet review by Coconut Wireless of Honolulu, Hawaii, who visited August 27, 2006. That review reads as follows. Myself and former Walt Disney World College program trailer mate went for a visit. He had a basic burger. I had the kitchen sink. Jim enjoyed his burger. I managed to finish off the kitchen sink in 50 minutes, five zero minutes, by myself. I can truly say that I understand what gluttony is now. I did get it for free. It tasted really good up until about halfway through, and then the flavors started mixing together. The atmosphere was wonderful. Understand that being an ice cream place, it was very noisy with lots of kids running around, but that is what helped make it. The wait staff was friendly and attentive to both myself and Jim as I attempted to complete the task at hand. 
Our waitress was impressed when I completed the kitchen sink and said that only about three or four people per year managed to do what I did. I don't know if I should be ashamed, embarrassed, or proud of what I did. I would recommend eating here. Well. <laughs> I, I, I just love that one. <laughs> um, I, think, I, I, think, I think he probably should be ashamed, embarrassed, and proud. I think that would be true. I, I just have to say, beaches and cream is part of the reason of my current appearance. Um, I have done the kitchen sink. Um, with Did you me finish and um, we had about, we had about maybe, you know, five or six spoonfuls left. And how many but of you were there? Me and one other, um, gentleman. Ah. But he was barely touching it, you know. Um, he was, he was working on it a little bit, but, you know, he, he, he gave up after, you know, like four or five scoops and, um, like, spoonfuls, and I, I called him a wuss, but... I kept going, but it does get very, very disgusting when the flavors start to mix. Yeah. It's one scoop of every flavor of ice cream that they have, plus every topping that they have. Hey, don't forget the most important part. The cherry? No. Cherries? An an entire can of whipped cream. Ah. And with mine, they used like a can, uh, they, I think he said, used like a can and a half. Hmm. So. And, And for those of you from Brooklyn... Who remember Jan's ice cream? Yes, it is very reminiscent, though they don't serve it in the same kind of tub. They actually serve it in something that looks like a kitchen sink. But uh, I don't know. I love Beaches and Cream. I think that Beaches and Cream probably has the best burgers on property. Forgetting about the ice cream for a moment, I think that Beaches and Cream has the best burgers on property, and the ice cream isn't bad either. Now they. I think they may be the only place on property where you can get an egg cream, but it's not really up to Brooklyn standard egg cream, even though they do use, I believe, Fox's Ubed syrup, which is the official syrup of the Brooklyn egg cream. But it just it's just a little off. It's not a perfectly authentic egg cream, but it is really good. And then of course the standard ice cream dishes as well. And of course the extra large ice cream dishes which doesn't yeah. which don't just include the kitchen sink but also the no way jose and several others <laughs> no way jose um i used to date someone and that's what they got every time so i i've tried that one i've tried it a bunch quite of other an appetite or did they not finish it <laughs> oh no they finished it that's <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> quite an appetite yeah it's true but Hey, they have really good chicken sandwiches there as well. I have to speak to the quality of the chicken sandwiches. One of the best places on property to get a good chicken sandwich, in my opinion. That's true, because you're the non-red meat eater, so you wouldn't know from burgers. Yeah, non-beef, non-pork, non-seafood eater. So, but, I, I'm uh, the poultry yeah. expert of Walt Disney World. But definitely, you know, the ice cream is um, qu- quite an attraction in itself. And just watching people try to finish it off a kitchen sink is quite entertaining. But again, as it was noted in the first review, it is a very small restaurant with high demand, so it can be somewhat of a long wait. We went there on the spur of the moment during Mouse Fest 2006, um, was Mass Fest 2006? 
Um, yeah, because David, David Koenig was there, I think. So, yeah, we were there, and it was, uh, it was uh, very enjoyable. You, you can also get a table outside, but it's, it's more fun inside, I think. And also, if you're going midday and it's very warm out, you may want to be inside as well. They do have takeout, too, as well. There is a takeout window. I'll have a no way, Jose, to go. <laughs> I've seen people order the kitchen sink to go. Wow. And they yeah. actually do it? They've got, yeah, they've got, they they've just... got something large enough to, to put it in? Yes, they do. Believe it or not, um, I've seen them do it. Wow. Yeah. It ruins the experience, though, when you're, you're a serious ice cream lover when you're getting the kitchen sink to enjoy elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, you know, you lose that whole audience thing, you know? Who knows? It might be a good thing, depending on the person. <laughs> uh, anyway, we'll put a link to the Beaches and Cream we've used page, as well as its park guide page, in the show notes. Don't forget that you can access the user reviews section of Mass Planet from a link on the left-hand side of any page. Just click Use Reviews. Don't forget that you can post your own reviews when you come back from your trip. Ask the Kid! Now it's time for Ask the Kid. Have you ever been sitting around the home wondering, I wonder what Mark's eight-year-old son thinks about our Disney topic? Well, wonder no more. This is your once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to call or write in with your questions about anything Disney-related. And our resident young Disney expert, Mark's son, will be the answerer of your puzzling questions. So let's go to the audio. Okay, we're back again with another episode of Ask the Kid. This week's question comes from listener Eric Scales, who asks, What one attraction would you like to change, and what would you like to change about it? Well, I would like to change the um, Spaceship Earth attraction from an Omnimover ride about technology through the ages, like communication, to like a time travel thing where you can go into the future or something, and then when you get off, it's it's like, Welcome to the future. If you walk past the future, you have gone into the place where you can go around the world in a day. Hmm, that's interesting. Did you know that they're actually redoing Spaceship Earth? They are? Yep, and they're changing it from communication through the ages to innovation through the ages. And it's going to be about inventing. And it's going to be... Uh, the, the new post-show has some stuff about new technology that was developed for avoiding car accidents and for helping to uh, look inside the body and things like that. Well, I think I know what one of the things to look in... I mean, to help people prevent car accidents is i think that is um like the cars that where when you get close to a car it stops itself uh it might be it might be okay so the thing that you'd like to change is actually being changed how about that it's kind of weird but anyway it's still cool at the same time okay That'll wrap it up for this week's Ask the Kid. We'll be back again with another question next week. Bye. Now, I think that that's really funny because I had not told him before that that they were 
making all those changes to Spaceship Earth. Now, again, you know, he's obsessed with this time travel thing that he's used to answer previous questions. But, you know, I, I think it's interesting that he's looking to change Spaceship Earth from an Omnimove variety about communications to a time travel theme when they're changing it from communications to an innovation through the ages theme. I think your son listens to the, is sneaking in a way and listening to the podcast. <laughs> no, no, he's not. But uh, I, think, I think it's amazing that he came up with that. Your fun never is not fun. Ooh, your son never ceases to amaze me in his answers. He never ceases to amaze me either. It's it's amazing experience listening to what he comes up with sometimes. Do you share um, um, his answers with your wife? Um, sometimes yes, sometimes no. A lot of the time we do our recording when she's not around. First of all, because the house is quieter. And second of all, because... <laughs> He's not uh, being distracted by trying to do something with her at the time. I don't, I don't know whether she's interested or not. She's she's kind of one of those. Okay, I like Disney, but in doses, I don't want to hear it all the time. So I don't know, you know, what how much she'd be interested in hearing that. But uh, if any of our listeners out there have any questions that they'd like to hear an eight-year-old perspective on. Uh, or if you're planning a trip to Walt Disney World with an eight-year-old and you want to get an eight-year-old's perspective on something, uh, send it to podcast at mouseplanet.com. Call the toll-free feedback line at one 939 2278 and we'll see if we can get an answer for you. And if you just need a personal eight-year-old tour guide, I'm sure his son is available for rental. You just have to pay for... The rest of his family to go to Disney World, right? There you go. And his friendly co-host. And now it's time for this week's Magical Moment. Our Magical Moment this week comes from Christy Carlson Romano, the voice of Disney's Kim Possible who took the time to tell Stephen Ng about a magical moment on the red carpet at the Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End premiere. Okay, so I'm here with Christy Romano, who is the voice of Kim from Kim Possible. Okay, let me ask you one question, and that is, do you have one particular moment that's really special to you from your visit to Disneyland? My favorite moment was when I did a Mickey Mouse statue, and I modeled it, I designed it myself after Kim Possible, and the proceeds went to Make-A-Wish. So um, it's actually kind of important because Make-A-Wish is the charity that, that is benefiting tonight. And um, Kim Possible, the, um, the Mickey statue, was also auctioned off at Sotheby's last year. Um, and it's just so great to be a part of that. And so when my moment when I saw my statue actually here and un unveiled in Disney World was really amazing. All right. Sure. All right. Thank you very much. That's cool how she was able to, you know, help a charity and um, design something at the same time. Yep, and it's a pretty interesting-looking Mickey. For those of you who don't remember, the 75 Inspirations were a series of 75 six-foot-tall statues of Mickey Mouse, each of which uh, was designed by different celebrity or celebrities. I don't know. I'm guessing that these celebrities didn't actually paint the uh, Mickeys, but rather 
talked about what they wanted it to look like, and they had an artist do it, but I don't know for sure. But it, it's definitely an, an interesting Kim Possible-looking Mickey. And we'll, we'll link to um, the Disneyland update, which had a picture of the statue in it in the show notes. Do you know where the idea of the 75 Year Aspirations came from? Oh, I'm sure it came from Michael Eisner. That's not what I was going to say. They ripped off Minnesota. Oh, that's right. It came, it came from uh, the uh, Snoopies, right? Yep. The Snoopy, the, when Charles Schultz passed away, um, the Help a Foundation to share his art with future generations, um, to keep his comics and papers, they did a lot of different Snoopies that local Minnesota artists painted up and different businesses sponsored them, and they auctioned some away, and now they're dotted all around St. Paul, Minnesota. They have continued every year with Lu- with Lucy's and Linus's and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that same concept has been taken off in a lot of other companies and projects, none of which is Disney. Well, so. were the Snoopies the first project, or were the Bulls? In, um, was it the Bulls in Chicago? I, I the, thought the cows. The cows was it? Yeah, I know. I I know what you're talking about with the cows. I thought it was Snoopies were were first with this whole idea of collaborative. Statues. I don't remember which one was first. If anybody out there knows, please uh, send us an email and let us know. Regardless, it wasn't an original idea for Disney. That no. was my only point. As a matter of fact, a um, short while north of here at a city that inspired a Disney resort in Saratoga Springs, each summer they now have a series of horse statues because uh, of the Saratoga racing season. Uh, Saratoga Springs. I love my hot springs filled with tap water. Don't you? (laughs) Well, there is the photo essay that I did back comparing Saratoga Springs with Saratoga Springs, uh, including a picture of the High Rock Springs pool at the resort and the actual High Rock Spring in Saratoga Springs, which is basically a mound that water comes out of. And apparently they... I believe they control the flow now, but I'm not positive. But we're getting way off topic now. Again, it was it was very cool to hear Christy Carlson Romano's story. And also, um, we will have a link to that great uh, KP Mickey in the show notes. So, do you have a magical moment that you'd like to share with our other listeners? Doesn't matter if it's a theme park moment, a movie moment, a song, a a Walt Disney quote, a photo, whatever. If it's, if it's Disney-related and it's magical to you, we want to hear about it. And we're sure our other listeners want to hear about it, too. So you can send your magical moments to stories at mouseplanet.com or call the toll-free feedback line at 1-866-939-2278. Your story may appear on the podcast, and it will also be considered for inclusion in our Cast Place column on the Mouse Planet website. And don't forget that magical moments are best when they're told in your voice, so call that feedback line. Incoming transmission. Mouse Mouse Station Station listener listener feedback. feedback. All right. In listener feedback, we have a lengthy email from Mike Sheeran. Uh, Sonny and Mike are... Half of the Abominables, a team that has played the Mouse Adventure in California, 
a number of times, and they also came east and participated in last December's Minnie Mouse Adventure at Mouse Fest. And they and were on the Magical Moment podcast and on the cruise as well. That's right. So they uh, just came back with another pirate-related event, and uh, Mike sent an email that said, Hey, Mark and Mike. Well, we are back from the pirate event at Walt Disney World. We had a great time. First of all, the dinner at River Country was not included in the second-tier package, so we did not attend that. I talked to some that did, and they said that the place was in good shape, clean, and it was well-decorated for their dinner. They said that it did not really show any signs of reopening anytime soon, though. All of the treasure on display from Greg's stem, uh, I had asked Mike to uh, see if Greg's stem was going to display any of the treasure that they've recently raised uh, in the Mediterranean, but apparently all the treasure was from another shipwreck, the SS Republic, he thinks, and he can verify that. He was selling some china coins and jewelry made from bottles recovered from the wreck. Alice Davis and Harriet Burns really did nothing other than the signings. There was no formal speaking from from them unless they spoke in a short Disney Classics Collection seminar that we did not attend. The most interesting people of the whole event were those in the movie. Jim Burkett, a storyboard artist, Joel Harlow, makeup supervisor, Hal Hickel, computer animation director from ILM, Rick Heinrichs, production designer, and Lee Ehrenberg, who played Pintel, gave us two seminars where they talked in depth about making the movie. There was personal video shown by Jim Burkett of him and Gore Verbinski scouting the Caribbean for locations. It included a pretty funny stab at Michael Eisner. He also showed lots of conceptual drawings from the very beginning of production with stories of how he and Gore came up with key scenes, like the bone cage and pole vault scenes from Pirates 2, as well as the maelstrom scene from Pirates 3. Hal Hickel showed video and shared about creating Davy Jones and of how, in most scenes, his face is nearly 100% computer-generated. Joel Harlow spoke of creating the makeup for Pintel, Bootstrap, and many others, and of how exciting it was to touch up Kira Knightley's makeup a couple of times. Rick Heinrichs spoke of building huge sets on Dominica, the island they used extensively, and taking them down in a hurry for the hurricanes, only to have to rebuild them, and then take them down again for another hurricane. Lee Ehrenberg spoke about how great it was to work with everyone and how appreciative he and the actors were for the amazing crew that they were working with. They all spoke extremely highly of working with Gore, and they felt that the style of movies that Jerry Bruckheimer creates were somewhat of a dying breed. Huge sets in real locations, massive full-size ships built in a warehouse in Lancaster, California that were mounted onto huge robotic arms so that they could move around in front of a giant green screen to fill the maelstrom scene. Hal Hickel said that his nightmare was of movies being constantly edited with computers and there being version 2.0s in theaters. He said when the movie wrapped, he wanted to be done with it and go on vacation. There seemed to be some desire to make a fourth movie, especially from Lee Ehrenberg and Jason Sorrell. There was a lot of encouragement to see the movie again on opening weekend to break the records and squash the spider. Jason Sorrell moderated all of the movie seminars and was a very good host. The final evening, we had a very large dinner that was followed with a painting exhibition by Trevor Carlton, who painted a six-foot-by-four-foot painting of Pirate Mickey while playing dance music in about 40 minutes. It was an amazing thing to watch. 
The painting was later auctioned off for over $5,000. Other things in the auction were production sketches by Jim Burkett of Davy Jones and of the Kraken, a makeup session with Joel Harlow where he turned the winner into a scraggly old pirate and then showed him to us. Quite a bit of original art and sculptures were also auctioned off. We were then bused to the AMC Theater in downtown Disney for a midnight showing of the movie. The theater was extremely busy, with pirates acting in the lobby and lots of people dressed as pirates, and not just those in our event. We sat beside Joel Harlow, and the movie was started off with Lee Ehrenberg getting everyone excited by saying, Hello, Poppet. It was very exciting to watch the movie with all of these people, and the crowd was very much into the movie, with lots of cheering and clapping throughout. And uh, Mike also said that they're going to be at Disneyland in two weeks for the opening of the Nemo attraction, uh, and he might report it on that. Mike, definitely look for uh, Stephen. Uh, you know him from Mouse Adventure, and uh, if if you can get find him at the uh, at the event, definitely um, chat with him because he's going to have some great recording equipment with him. And I'll talk to you soon, Mike. So thank you, first of all, for offering to report in from the event, and second of all, for reporting in from the event. It's great to hear uh, what they were doing for folks there. Uh, and of course, you know, envy on our end. We, we were wishing that we could be there, but uh, circumstances dictated that we could not go down. And uh, it sounded like a, a great event. After listening to Lee Arenberg's, uh interview from the red carpet last week definitely he sounds like a, a fun guy to listen to and i guess the other guys are really good with their stories as well thanks mike it was definitely cool to hear your experiences from that unique event the only thing i'm disappointed in is that they premiered it at the amc theater i thought they could come up with something a little bit more creative of a location than the amc but well basically it was just attending what was originally to be the first showing of the movie in the theater. It was it was not designed as a big premiere like it was at Disneyland. The Florida event was more planned as this is a celebration of pirate all things pirates and we're gonna let you see the movie as soon as it opens. Uh, Which as it turns out was four hours after it opened. But what are you gonna do? It was still Enjoyable for those who sounded like you had a great time. Well, we have a voicemail this week, and it's from Alan. And you'll find out what Alan's last name is in just a second. And he's from Yorba Linda. So let's take a listen. Hi, Mike and Mark. This is Alan from Yorba Linda. And I want to let you know you had a great podcast this last week, especially the Pirates of the Caribbean uh, red carpet interview at Disneyland. It's segments like those that I think sets your podcast above all the other Disney podcasts. Anyways, Mark, after the red carpet interview segment, you commented twice to Stephen Ng that he pronounced Jay Rasulo's name incorrectly. And I find this kind of ironic since you've been mispronouncing Stephen Ng's name incorrectly since the beginning of the Mouse Planet podcast. And how do I know this? Well, Stephen Ng is my brother, and that means you've been mispronouncing my name too. So let me help you out. The correct pronunciation is ing, like jumping, writing, podcasting, not ang, like ang Lee or something like that. Well, understand me, the hearing one's name mispronounced is like listening to fingernails on a chalkboard. 
or a child's defiant scream because he couldn't get a toy he wanted at the Emporium. Worse yet, it's like listening to Jennifer Tilly as Madame Leota. Now, I'm sorry. I, I just wanted to get this off my chest. I don't mean to sound petty. I love your podcast and The Lion King Rules. So keep up the good work, Mark Goldhaber, Mike Dimitropoulos, and I'll keep listening for, uh, for the weeks to come. Thanks. Mark, Mark, Mark. How could you? You know. Okay. No, 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 no. Hang on, hang on. Since we've only got a small number of listener feedbacks this week, I'm going to take a little time to explain that when I was younger, um, I had someone who supposedly had contacts over at NBC explain to me that the woman who was a writer on Saturday Night Live for a long time and whose name I always saw in the credits pronounced her last name uh, or pronounced her name as Jenny Ang. And so whenever I saw NG, I always thought of it as Ang. Now, when we first mentioned Stephen's last name on the podcast, and we went back and forth because you were trying to say it without a vowel on the front end, and I was telling you, Ang, Stephen sent us an email after that saying, you got the pronunciation right. Ing, spelled it I-N-G, or Ang, spelled it E-N-G, work. You should hear how it's pronounced in Chinese. Mark, did you get the pronunciation because Kim Eng was the Yankees' assistant GM? Now, apparently, um, Stephen has much more tolerance for multiple pronunciations than Alan. So, Alan, uh, I apologize, and Stephen, I apologize, and I will make every attempt to pronounce it Ing from now on. It's uh, going to be a little counterintuitive, though, of course, I also wonder whether the person who told me about Jenny Ng was whether she whether they were correct or whether it actually was Jenny Ng. But in any case, I will make every attempt to pronounce it Ng and we'll see how well I do over um, upcoming shows. And just to play off of the mispronunciation of my name, my name my last name was probably originally pronounced Goldhaber at the turn of the last century. Uh, when my family was still in Vienna, Austria. I don't know when they decided to change the pronunciation from Goldhaber to Goldhaber. Uh, I would guess it's probably sometime in the early mid 1900s, but you know, probably maybe the 30s, maybe the 40s, I don't know. But I don't know why they changed the name, but I'm used to hearing it pronounced both ways and I'm tolerant as well. But well, what did he? What was his um, playoff of my last name again? I have to. Uh, Demetropolis. Demetropolis. I've heard that a couple times, believe it or not. But Alan, it's good to know that you listen and enjoy the show. Um, with the slight, especially min- the segments where your brother is reporting in. <laughs> so, Alan, it was a very funny um, voicemail. I thank you. Yes, for just calling in. one thing, please. Don't ever, ever compare me to Jennifer Tilly as Madame Leota again. That's just <laughs> too painful. Oh, jeez. But I enjoyed this. If, if you compare me to Jennifer Tilly again, I'm going to pronounce it Ung. <laughs> oh, and then this next logical step would be very bad, so we're not going to go there. But yeah. 
Um, I just found it funny that you were getting yelled at about pronunciation when I'm notorious on mispronouncing people's names and locations wrong all the time, and you keep correcting me, Mark. So I was happy that I wasn't getting yelled at this time. <laughs> I, I, I can take it and yell that. That's all right. But, Alan, we're glad you enjoyed the show, and it was a very funny voicemail, so thanks for calling in. Yep. All right, we have one last email this week from Steve Russo, who uh, sent me a note saying, Mark, first let me say thanks for the Disney On Demand information. I never could have found the channel by searching Time Warner. And just a quick comment, uh, he was looking for the Disney Travel On Demand channel that we mentioned on the Mouse Planet Watch podcast and in the Walt Disney World Park update. And, of course, on Time Warner, they don't have just the Disney Travel On Demand channel. It's actually just part of something called Journey TV. And since Steve lives in the same area as I do, I was able to easily look up and tell him what channel to check. And then he said, it looks like nobody else stepped up to the plate last week, so here's a trivia question for you. Which attraction at Disneyland is only one-third the length of the same at Walt Disney World? Mike, why don't you take a shot at it? Which attraction at Disneyland is only one-third the length of the same attraction at Disney World? Is that what's... So, Disneyland being just shorter? Yes. Okay. Give me a second to think about this. Uh, Well, let's first go through the attractions that they're on both coasts of. Pirates is definitely longer at Disneyland. I would not say Pirates that's Pirates is it. 50% longer at Disneyland, yeah. Yeah. Haunted Mansion, I would they're, think, they're is the same. Is the same. Um, given maybe a slight edge to Disneyland, maybe be a little bit longer. Just remembering it. All right, I, they, have, they have one scene that you ride past where you actually walk past it in Florida. Ah, that's true. Um, I'm not sure if I would say one-third, but Atopia... Is the, I, I believe is is shorter than um, the Indy Speedway at Disney World. Mm, maybe, maybe not. Okay, I'm just trying to visualize the park. Tiki Room, we really can't compare anymore. Jungle Cruise, similar length, right? I believe so. Yeah. Jungle Cruise is similar lengths. Treehouse, about the same. But now they're different, so it doesn't really work. Um, do do do. Hmm. Oh, um, Big Thunder Mounted Railroad. No, they're actually uh, right about the same size. Okay. But mirror images. So if you want to do the goat trick, you got to look at the other side. That's true. Splash Mountain is about the same, right? Yep. Splash Mountain is pretty much the same. Um, the railroad. Well, you know. That's kind of what I came up with, too, because Space Mountain is actually longer at Disneyland because there's only one track instead of two in Florida. Buzz Lightyear, I think, is approximately the same same length on both coasts. Um, Fantasyland Dark Rides are of similar duration. And I then I said, well, the monorail isn't an attraction at Walt Disney World. It's transportation. And it's got to be more than three times the length of the trip, if only just because there are so many loops of the monorail. And I came up with the only possibility, and you know, the TTA versus the People Mover is uh, 
substantially similar distance. So the only thing I could come up with was the railroad, even though I thought that you know one third was a bit much of a uh, difference for it to be. I didn't think it was quite so much. But Steve's response was that it's the monorail. Monorail. Now, I can see that it's at least three times as long in Florida as it is in, in California. Yes. But to my mind, it's not an attraction. It's not even in the park. In California, it's an attraction. And in Florida, it's transportation. I don't know that I would call that valid, would you? No, because in Florida, you know, it's enjoyable, but it's not labeled as an attraction. In my mind, an attraction, you have to be through the park gates. So. Transportation, uh, it, it was kind of realization of Walt's dream to have the monorail serve as actual transportation. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of inclined to say that that, that that answer doesn't really flow, that it doesn't go. It's not, I, don't, I don't think that it's valid. But tell you what, let's open it up to the listeners. If you think that monorail counts as an attraction and Steve's question is valid... Or if you think Steve is wrong and it's not real an attraction, it's <laughs> transportation, um, send us an email. And if more people say that Steve is right and it's an attraction, then say Steve's wrong and it's transportation, then I will find something to give to Steve. If you say it's transportation, <laughs> not an attraction, then Steve's got to try again. Oh, are they going to say Steve has to... Find something to give to us. <laughs> well, Steve's, Steve's going to call around and have a bunch of people uh, send an email. Yeah. But, Steve, <laughs> thanks for writing in. Please write in again. We definitely enjoy your stump the yes, host. Yes, just, just because we, we don't agree with your assessment doesn't mean that we didn't enjoy the question and didn't enjoy trying to figure it out. Um, yeah, and now he's going to find some Imagineer that calls the monor like some interview with some Imagineer um, about the Florida monorail. They called it an attraction. <laughs> well, uh, still I fun though. Oh yeah, and we came up with the same conclusion. All right. So, what do you think of the show? We doing all right? Are we doing stuff you don't like? The only one way that we'll know, and that's if you let us know. Send us feedback at podcast at mouseplanet.com or leave us a voicemail on our toll-free feedback line at 1-866-939-2278. Submit magical moments to stories at mouseplanet.com or call our toll-free feedback line. Stories will also be considered for inclusion in the wonderful cast place column on the Mouse Planet website. In fact, Mark, that's where I found out about Mouse Planet was through the cast place. Ah, and you even had your own letter published in Cast Place when you first got into the college program. That is true. But once I found Mouse Planet, it, I kept going for the park updates every week. Yeah, suck up. Just okay. <laughs> <laughs> read. All right. Uh, and, of course, don't forget our listener survey. There's a link near the top of the podcast page. And, as always, the information that we're most interested in is the information about how you listen to the podcast, whether you subscribe or not, how much of the show you listen to, how often you listen, what you like about the podcast, what you don't like about the podcast. And if you can, if you've got something to say, please fill out the comment pages at the end of the survey. 
The link is near the top of the podcast page uh, at massplant.com slash podcast. Uh, it'll take you about 10 minutes to fill out the entire survey, and you can fill it out anonymously. Please go to the iTunes podcast directory, give us a good rating, and vote on the helpfulness of the other ratings. The higher our rating, the more people will be able to find us. Also, if you can't get your fill of your Mouse Station and Mouse Planet Pride, please go to our Mouse Planet Cafe Press store at cafepress.com slash mouseplanet. So that'll wrap it up for this week. Don't forget to visit mouseplanet.com for the complete park updates every Monday and fresh content every weekday. For more Disney news, check out our Mouse Planet Watch podcast, which is also available from our podcast page at mouseplanet.com slash podcast. You'll find our show notes in the Columns General Forum on our Mousepad discussion forums. They're also linked from the podcast page. We'd like to thank our sound editor and audio engineer, Stephen Ng. Ng. Ng, I-N-G is how we pronounce it, but it's spelled N-G. Next week, we'll go back out to the West Coast for interviews from well, the Red... Next, next week, we'll do something. We don't know what we're doing yet. Next week, we have no less than 42 surprises for you. Until, <laughs> until then, I'm Mike DeMompus, reminding you that it takes people to make the dream a reality. And I'm Mark Oldhaber, reminding you to live the magic every day. See you next week. See ya.